want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the, get the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit the like button on this video. And any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. Today is a Q&A episode. So I put out a request for questions on Twitter. If you're not following me on Twitter, please consider doing so. This is the best way to ask me questions, to get information on the podcast, and just talk about stocks. So you can follow me on Twitter at Trey Henniger, T-R-E-Y-H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. And periodically I'll put out a call for questions and they might get featured on the podcast. So today I'm going to work through this. Um, looks like I have six or seven questions at this time. Um, we'll work through them, see however long it takes, probably not longer than 30 minutes, and we'll go from there. So first question I have is what are the best questions to ask management and or investor relations? So this is good. Um, part of my process is to talk to management um, either before or after making an investment as part of my um, maintenance due diligence. A lot of times I don't necessarily need to talk to management before making my first purchase of stock, but I do like to discuss with management later on, especially as I grow the stock to a large amount of the portfolio or as news comes out that either was unexpected or that I'd like to figure out some of the reasoning behind it. You see, one of my key goals as an investor is to only invest with management that I like, that I understand how they think about capital allocation, and their decisions are ones that I would agree with in terms of the long-term outlook for the company. It doesn't mean I have to make believe they don't make mistakes or that they make perfect decisions. It's just I want to understand how they think so that I can understand how their decisions might change in the future and what they'll do under certain situations. So to the question, I think that background is important. Um, best question to ask management or investor relations. I have never found it helpful to talk to the investor relations, um, but I have found it very helpful to talk to management. Your results may differ, but I think in general, if you talk to investor relations, you're going to frequently be referred to the language that's in the 10K, the language in the 10Qs, and you're not going to get information that is really valuable to you that you couldn't have gotten somewhere else. Um, what's helpful in talking to management is to understand how they think and to understand how they'll make capital allocation decisions and to understand how the business works if you have questions. Investor relations can't help you with that. So 
what they can do is they can answer simple questions uh, that have to do with why was something defined as this depreciation schedule versus that depreciation schedule? Or do I correctly understand how you're determining the discount rate for options or something? They might have something simple. Um, you know, there's a discrepancy on two of the recent reports and you want to understand something like that. But that's not make or break for an investment. What you understand with management is management can make or break your investment on capital allocation and their philosophy, how they're compensated, their incentives all matter there. So when you're talking to management, it's important not to ask them something that you would know if you had read their reports. Um, don't waste management's time. Um, you wouldn't want them, you wouldn't want someone wasting your time if you were running a company. And so you, even as a shareholder, even as the owner, need to be cognizant of the value of their time um, because as a shareholder, their time is your money. And so, but it's also the money of the other shareholders. So you just need to be cognizant of their time and not ask questions that could be clearly understood. So if something's in okay, don't ask about what their earnings were. Um, they reported it. It's clearly there. Don't ask um, things like that. What you want to understand is if they mention making an acquisition um, or they mention how they decide, you know, trying to help them, you understand why they made a buy versus lease decision. That's a valuable question to ask management. Um, so recently in Solitron Devices, one of the stocks that I own um, that I've talked about before on this podcast, the management purchased a new facility and they had recently been leasing a facility. So they went from leasing a facility to buying a facility. And that was surprising to me because my original estimate estimate was that they would be renting a facility going forward. The is a there's a large difference in the capital allocation philosophy from leasing a facility versus owning a facility. That's a significant difference in the capital intensity of the business because of how the ownership of the property affects your balance sheet and your future decisions, your flexibility, various things along those lines. So for me, it was important to ask management questions about that. I wanted to understand why was that decision made um, lease versus buy? I wanted to understand how that was. What are the drivers there trying to understand it? Because it was confusing to me. So that's something like what you'd want to do is you see a decision and you don't understand it. So for me, what I do is I write that question down and then that's a question that I might have when I could get to talk to management would be, you know, at the next annual meeting, you ask a question like that because like, oh, you did this. Why? I thought you were going to do something else based upon what you had said before. And so the questions should be around the key value drivers of your thesis. So for me, management, one of the key driver drivers of management always is capital allocation. How are you making decisions? Why are you making those decisions? What is your thought process? Again, it's not about there being a right answer or a wrong answer, but you want to understand their thought process because that allows you to better predict the future. 
that allows you to game plan. Okay, if they have a pandemic, what are they going to do? If they have um, the ability to borrow money, what are they going to do? Are they going to borrow money? How much leverage will they leverage up? So you can ask questions about that. You can ask questions of how they think about leverage and debt. Um, I like to ask questions about the sales process. One of the keys, and this is more on the business model side, is is understanding the stickiness of sales, stickiness of customers, um, the time frames. So is it a quick turnaround from when you start seeking out a customer? Um, you know, can are they going to buy within a month? Or are they going to buy within two years? Those very those are very different business models. Um, so that's one I probably ask all the time is trying to understand the purchasing process. Um, I want to understand how they like cash versus debt, um, what they think an appropriate cash buffer is. Um, and then also if they have excess capital, what are they going to do with it? Do they like to buy back shares? Do they like to acquire new companies? Do they want to reinvest in this business? Do they want to pay regular dividends? Do they want to pay special dividends? Um, and so I won't necessarily ask, like, do you want to pay dividends? But I was going to ask, like, well, what's your capital allocation philosophy? You know, how do you see, you know, excess cash? And for me, I would probably start with, like, well, especially for companies that I'm investing in, I'm, I'm usually buying into companies with cash on the balance sheet and limited debt. And so I want to understand how much cash is needed for the maintenance of the business. And then how much cash is excess that you could do something with, that you could pay as a dividend, that you could pay um, in an acquisition. And so that's what you want to understand. Um, alternatively, if they have a bunch of cash and no debt, are they always going to have no debt? Why don't they have debt? Um, what's their philosophy on debt? Um, these are very important decisions that management can make that can make or break your investment. Um, you can make a lot of money buying companies that have no debt that leverage up while you own them. And you can lose a lot of money by buying companies with a lot of debt that pay it down while you own them because it's a low return activity. So ask about capital allocation, asking about why they've done stuff in the past allows you to predict how they would do it in the future. So specific examples, they bought company X, Y, what was the reason? Was it strategic, financial, et cetera? Um, and then if there's questions about the business that help you understand it better, and that's what I talk about, customer behavior, sales cycle, um, capital intensity, I'm always interested in operating leverage. So if I can figure out how to, how that might play in, you know, will earnings grow faster than sales or will sales grow faster than earnings? What's the pricing power? Um, so that, that's kind of what I like to talk to management about. I'll go to the next question. In today's interest rate environment, are there any circumstances in which you would be happy to see management in a stock you own raise capital through share issuance? <sighs> Any circumstances when I would be happy for management to dilute shareholders? You know, in general, I don't like this because I'm a big fan of stable share counts, not issuing shares, um, in general, treating shares like gold. I think there's a good statement for you want management to treat your shares like gold, that they aren't going to dilute you um, without good reason. So I don't like seeing steady, regular share issuance. 
either in terms of employee um, employee stock grants. I don't like that. Um, I don't like seeing um, ongoing executive comp through share issuance, which is contrary to many people. Um, so I don't like to see that. However, you asked about any circumstance when I'd be happy to see it. For me, the one circumstance where I'd be happy to see share issuance is if the company is making an acquisition that is both strategic and game-changing for shareholders, that adds a lot of per-share value to shareholders. And usually this would be in combination with the use of cash and debt. What I do not want to see my company do under basically any circumstance is buy another company with an all stock transaction because the only way that makes sense is if the company's stock is overvalued and if the company's stock is overvalued I don't want to own it so what that means for me is that if shares are being issued to raise capital I want it to be part of an acquisition where they're also paying cash for as much of it as they can and presumably they're using cash on the balance sheet and raising debt and issuing shares. And so where would that be necessary? That would be necessary if they're buying a company that is so big relative to their current size and current cash balance and current profitability that they cannot close the acquisition without issuing shares. Basically, issuing shares is the decision of last resort. So, you know, if I have a company and let's say the company is $20 million in market cap, they're earning a million dollars or $2 million, let's say $2 million in profits every year. And so they can borrow $6 million, you know, three times earnings or three times EBITDA or something like that. They can borrow $6 million from the bank. They currently don't have any debt. They also have $6 million in cash. And so they can pay up to $12 million for a company. But maybe they need $16 million to close the deal. So that's the purchase price. Well, if they can raise 6 million from debt, 6 million from cash on the balance sheet, and then the last 4 million is issuing shares, that's okay. Because what's happening is the per share value is increasing significantly because the debt's being used and because the cash is being used. So the shares are not the only mechanism. Um, I think it needs to be a last resort, but that is an area where I would support management issuing shares when normally I wouldn't. And there's a few companies I can think of that I currently own that are very similar to that, where I think share issuance may be required to close a deal that they, in order to make it go through. And if it's a good enough deal, I don't want it to fall apart because they refuse to issue shares under any circumstance. So I would want them to close the deal, but then I'd, I'd like them to buy that shares back at some point um, or at least continue to make really high accretive earnings for the, the shareholders. But you have to be careful because in, in, in general acquisitions are bad for a business. Um, they're a really easy way to lose, to destroy shareholder capital. If you pay too much for a business that you acquire, it's really easy to destroy shareholder capital and you need to be careful of that. So it's definitely a circumstance that would be allowed for this, that I would be okay with it and happy with it depending upon the acquisition. But it could also be a reason I would sell. If someone's making an acquisition I do not like and they're issuing shares to do it, especially an all stock transaction, that'll get me to sell. Because what I don't want is to own companies 
that have a bad capital allocation policy or that I don't agree closely with management of how they treat shareholder capital. Next question is favorite company filing and why is it the proxy statement? So I think this one's funny. So basically they're trying to lead me into saying my favorite company filing is a proxy statement and and that is not true. I think there's a lot of value in the proxy statement. Certainly the proxy statement is one of the area is one of the filings that's most overlooked by investors in terms of its value. Um, the proxy statement is very valuable and this is I believe the 14A form 14A um, details management and executive compensation. Um, and usually you get a lot of detailed information that does not show up in the 10K or annual report that tells you the incentives of management. So it's a very important company filing um, and can be one of the ones that provide the most edge if used properly but it's not my favorite. And so when I answer favorite, you know, I'm thinking about this because I saw this um, go up about an hour ago before I'm recording it. And so I've been thinking a little bit about how I answer this. And what I've thought it through is I don't think favorite company filing means the most important. And I don't think it's necessarily the best. To me, the the most important company filing is the 10K by far. There's no question. The 10K is the most important company filing because it has the most important information, most valuable. If you're not reading the 10K, um, you shouldn't invest in a company. Basically, if you haven't read the 10K, you shouldn't buy the stock, period. That's my stance. Um, so you need to read the 10K. It's the most important. The second most important is probably the proxy statement. Um, and the proxy statement, because it's the second most important, is going to be more likely to be overlooked than the 10K. And so you should also read the, ten, the proxy statement before investing, but it's less people are going to read the proxy statement, so you're more likely to get an edge. Um, but neither of those is my favorite. My favorite company filing is the Form 4. The Form 4 is the one that shows insider purchases or sales. And so my favorite company filing is when I see Form 4s being reported regularly where management is buying stock on the open market with cash, not options, with cash and building their stake in the company. It signals that the company is undervalued in their view. It signals that they want to be long-term owners of the company and that they think it's a good time to buy stock. That's my favorite filing by far, and it's not even close. Is it the most useful? No, but it is a very clear signal that insiders believe the stock is cheap for whatever reason. They could be wrong. But um, it's my favorite one. And I love seeing Form 4s come out of management buying stock in my companies on the open market after I already have a holding in it. The next one, what are some of your research resources that you use for due diligence on a company slash stock? This is a good question. Um, let me run through them pretty quick. It's pretty straightforward what I do. So first part of my due diligence process is usually... Um, a quick analysis using quickfs.net. Um, I think it's quickfs.net. Let me, let me double check that. Yeah, quickfs.net. Just want to make sure it wasn't .com. Um, you, you go on there, you you type in the ticker symbol, and it'll give you um, 10 years for free if you uh, of past year's financials or 20 years if you pay for it. Um, it's very, very valuable. Highly recommend it. Um, 
So if you're using quick, so I, I spend the first five, 10 minutes using QuickFS to determine if this company is even worth looking at. And usually within to five minutes, I can determine whether I want to spend any more time on the stock. So in my last up, one of my, I think it was the last episode I recorded, I talked about how I wanted to quickly eliminate um, companies and next questions is on this too. So you want to quickly eliminate companies as fast as possible um, so that you spend the time that you do research on the most important companies and you really want to manage that process well. So a good screening filter is really important. So my first step is I screen using QuickFS, um, use the financials to determine whether the company is attractive or not. I want to see growth. I want to see a a low price. I want to see a good business model, um, high returns on capital. I want to see returns on equity above 15%, ideally returns on capital above 15%. Exception for banks where um, they use significant leverage. So simply return on equity of 15% or more would be be good. So I want to see those metrics play out. And that's the first step. Spend five, 10 minutes doing that. See if it's good. If it passes that, the next thing I'm going to do for my due diligence is I'm going to look at the 10K. Um, I'm going to use the 10K and the, and the proxy statement, the 14A, to determine how the business operates. So I'm learning about the business model. I'm learning and then I'm valuing the company. So the 10 K helps me value the company and learn about the business model, determine whether it's high or low quality. The proxy statement then is used to evaluate management. Um, and I read those. So I read those for every company period, um, before investing in the, in the stock. And that allows me to understand the business model, allows me to understand valuation and allows me to understand, um, management. Um, the next step is I'll read a certain amount of the previous earnings calls if they have them. They don't always have them in microcap land where I spend a lot of my time. But I'm trying to understand how the business, how the management thinks. So the proxy statement lets you understand how the management is compensated. And conference calls or questions and talking with management directly helps you understand how management thinks, which is very important to have an edge necessary to concentrate your investments. Um, I've heard people say that basically good investing and due diligence is like an investigative reporter. When you read the 10K, you're, you're going to write down questions if you're doing it well um, of what do you want to know, what don't you understand, what doesn't make sense. And then your job after that is to go answer the questions. So could be Googling, trying to figure things out, looking up the the company, Google Maps, trying to evaluate, you know, is this real? Is it a fraud? What, you know, what am I missing? Where could things go wrong? Um, this could be talking to customers, scuttlebutt, that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, 80%, you know, the 80 per 20 rule, um, 80% of the, of what you need to know is going to be in the 10 K proxy statement. And if you hit those two, you're going to cover 80% of the threshold. And that last 20% is important. Um, but really the resources are dependent by company. So hope that's helpful. Um, I definitely recommend QuickFS. And I also spend time using, especially otcmarkets.com, where there's a lot of information about the filings and such. Um, but usually it's not much more than you can get through the SEC. Um, but sometimes a company is not filing with the SEC, so OTC Markets is very helpful. I also use OTC markets to give me some of the trading data um, on some very illiquid stocks. 
Next question, how much time on average do you put in on initial due diligence versus how much time is spent on maintenance due diligence? So I have a previous podcast on this. Um, I believe it's, let's see, it's episode 109. I talk about how much time should you research a stock before buying. So that's my initial due diligence. And I said it's about 10 hours. Um, if I can't convince myself to buy a stock in 10 hours, um, at least under current circumstance, then it's not good enough to reach my hurdle. I have a very high hurdle rate right now. My goal is to buy 10 baggers and 10 that companies that will 10 bag in 10 years or less, which if you do the math is like a 26% annual return for, t- for 10 years. Um, and I also have a hurdle in there that, that the company needs to get a 10% annual return without any multiple expansion. Those are very high hurdles to hit. So most of the time I can eliminate a company easily within 10 hours. Um, usually substantially faster than that. Most of the companies are eliminated in the first 10 minutes. Um, just because there's no way to hit, uh, specifically that 10% without multiple expansion for many companies. Um, they're either valued too high, their growth isn't high enough, or their returns or capital aren't high enough. So it's just a quick filter. Um, I spend a lot of time on maintenance due diligence. If you think about how my portfolio is structured, my goal is to have five stocks, about 20% of the portfolio each. Which means if you think about how that works, that's a substantial amount of money in each company. So most of my time is maintenance due diligence. I'm constantly trying to understand how the businesses are doing. Um, I'll do continuing scuttlebutt, especially as I'm ramping up the position. So my companies take a long time to buy. They tend to be very illiquid. Um, It can take weeks to months to build my position in order to buy 20% position. I can't fill that in a day. I couldn't do it if I wanted to. Like I can't go out there and put a buy limit order um, for 20% of the my portfolio and get that filled. So typically I'll be buying daily for months on end or weeks on end in order to fill my positions. Uh, specifically with Solotron, it took me six months to fill my position um, before I reached the position sizing I wanted. So if you're buying for six months, that means that entire time, especially because generally I'm only buying one stock at once. There's one company that's my favorite company at that moment, the most attractive, highest opportunity, um, lowest risk. I spend that entire time, you know, I'm I'm looking for new companies all the time, but I spend 80% of the time during the buying process doing maintenance due diligence. So 10%, you know, might take 10 hours to convince myself to start buying and then it might take six months to actually finish buying, which means that entire six months, I'm spending extra time doing maintenance, due diligence, scuttlebutt, trying to talk to management, trying to talk to customers, trying to talk to other shareholders, um, reading everything I can, updating my points of view and modeling as um, new reports come out, all that sort of thing. So um, if my initial due diligence is 10 hours, my maintenance due diligence is usually in the hundreds of hours because it's so much more important. Um, I'm trying to buy companies I can hold for 10 years or more, which means I'm doing maintenance due diligence at a minimum on a quarterly basis for 10 years or, or however long I hold the stock. And 
there's a ton of maintenance due diligence during the buying process as I'm evaluating, continuing to evaluate management, continuing to seek areas where I'm wrong. And basically, anytime a news report comes out, anytime a quarterly earnings release comes out, I'm trying to update my assessment, update my evaluation, update whether my thesis is on track. So hope that helps. And that is the last question that I have for today. Um, the only other one here was about when I'm coming on to the Capital Employed podcast. So look forward to that. I should be on the Capital Employed podcast soon as a guest. So thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you have any questions, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Trey Henniger, T-R-E-Y-H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. And I look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.